Now, there's always something wrong. Now, you might be able to think of people whose <coughs> general conversation revolves around such a thought. Now, there's always something wrong. Um, but there is always something wrong. Uh, such thoughts sometimes get accompanied with... I am on, Pete. Uh, sometimes get accompanied with... They, something is always wrong and seems to be getting worse. We might think about the world generally. Wars, famine, disaster. Um, injustice and tragedy. Not just on a global scale, but uh, in our own lives, as uh, Andy has already mentioned, injustices against ourselves. In just the last three days, <coughs> I've uh, come across uh, somebody who, uh, in the middle of a car insurance claim, um, the blame seems obvious, uh, but it's being contested. It seems to be unfair. Uh, more seriously, a 20-year-old had a, a bicycle accident and may never walk again. Um, or even the Americans are now suggesting that Israel's response is perhaps disproportionate. But clearly there's intolerable trouble for both sides uh, in Israel and Palestine. One way or another, we will all know that there is always something wrong. Not everything, but there is always something. And maybe it is getting worse. Maybe there are times when it gets better. And that's been true in every generation. Uh, Napoleon is in the cinemas at the moment. Uh, was it any different in the French Revolution? Whether you were a peasant, royalty, or a soldier. Or if you happen to live under King John in this great nation of ours, with his taxes and his abuses of power, uh, and there was no insurance for anything in King John's day. And of course, if you lived when Assyria were the top world power. Nineveh is the capital, was the capital of Assyria. Nineveh in current day Iraq. When they were the top world power, there was always something wrong. As an empire, they'd begun around 900 BC. They'd risen in power. Uh, and by the time of Jonah, you'll remember from the church weekend, we'll come back to him uh, another time in this series. But by the time of Jonah, everybody feared Assyria, the kingdom based in Nineveh. They were everybody's enemies. They were the superpower. They were running the Middle East at that time. They had invaded countries and scattered their inhabitants all over their empire. That was their method, splitting up the peoples of the nations they conquered and spreading them all out so they could not possibly rise together again. They had a distinctive uh, way of dealing with prisoners. Uh, they used to keep their prisoners in line by putting nose rings in them and then attaching chains from each nose ring to the next nose ring. A very effective way of keeping prisoners uh, in line, but a fearful threat to their enemies. Invading and scattering, that's exactly what had happened 
to the northern kingdom of Israel, those ten tribes in the north of the promised land. They had been conquered and settled by, sorry, conquered and scattered by the Assyrians in 722 BC. Judah survived. Judah, that's that tiny southern kingdom. But Assyria with a dominant presence everywhere, the evil power to be feared. For anyone living around there at that time, all the way through to Nahum in about 625 BC, you lived in the shadow of Assyria. And so there was always something wrong. And by the time Nahum wrote, something had been wrong for a long time under the Assyrian regime. They had all felt her evil in some way or another. They'd all felt her endless cruelty, as Nahum will put it. There was always the same evil somewhere all of the time. That's the context into which Nahum writes. Well, last week, uh, Mark was doing something about what names mean, wasn't he? Apparently, there are loads of warriors in our congregation uh, and a couple of princesses and some small people and all that, because that's what our names mean, apparently. Well, given the last 200 years for Nahum, Nahum and his hearers under the Assyrians, Nahum has a very great name. The name of the prophet God sent to speak to his people who experienced endless cruelty, the name of the prophet Nahum means comfort. In a world where all, there is always something wrong, even on the grandest of scales, God sends comfort to speak for him. So it's not that much of a surprise that by the end of chapter 1, Judah are being told to celebrate, celebrate your festivals, Judah. By the end of chapter 3, all who hear the news about Assyria and their fall will clap their hands at your fall. For who has not felt your endless cruelty? Nahum, comfort from God will be spoken. Judah will celebrate and clap their hands. Nahum will speak comfort to God's people. Comfort is about bringing strength to someone in trouble, helping them through their trial, helping them to press on through the evil that surrounds them, giving them a confidence when evil is all around, helping them to keep their stride, even though there's always something wrong that might potentially trip them up. <clears throat> so they won't be overwhelmed by this endless cruelty that they sometimes see. 
Nahum brings that comfort and gives us a view of it, a view of all history, in fact, that will help us to have an assurance in life, even when we want to say everything is wrong and it's getting worse. And the first way Nahum helps us with this is by helping us to have God in his proper place. The perfect wrath of the perfect God. It's verses 2 uh, to 6 through to 8, we'll see. The perfect wrath of the perfect God. Now these verses, particularly verses 2 to 6, could be written anywhere in the Bible. If you just lifted them out, they're just a theological statement, a statement about God. Nahum wants us to know him and to understand him. And he'll bring it to land in the particulars of his context later. But here, these are verses about God being God, the perfect wrath of the perfect God. So in verse 2, we see that he's jealous. To be jealous is to be for something. Um, Now, we get confused about the word jealous because we usually use the word about being jealous over something that's not ours. Well, God is jealous for something that is his. Perhaps you should put it this way. Um, could put it this way. Uh, I, I should not be jealous of another husband over their wife. That's the wrong kind of jealousy. But I ought to be jealous for my own wife in the sense that there should be no rival husbands and so God is jealous for his people who are his he does not want rivals to come and pull them away and take them away from him he is jealous for his people and therefore he is vengeful against his foes also verse 2 God's perfect wrath is both jealous for something vengeful against something for his people and against his foes and his judgment is reserved for his enemies It's measured, it's not indiscriminately, God's wrath is not indiscriminately distributed. The Lord takes vengeance on his foes and vents his wrath against his enemies. And the Lord is slow to anger. This is not capricious, it's not flitting from one state of mind to another. God is patient He's slow to anger, so when his anger does come, it is his settled, considered response. He never loses his temper. He's always fully in control of himself in his anger. He is slow to anger, but great in power. God is not struggling to make his wrath effective. When he sets out to do it, he does it. He's not hindered in doing it. He's not 
uh, struggling to stay the course. He expresses it and he expresses it in power. He is just. The Lord will not leave the guilty unpunished. Uh, guilt here it seems to be defined as whether you're for God or against him. As we saw back in verse 2, jealous for his people, against his enemies. But nobody's going to get off on a technicality before the justice of God. He will not leave the guilty unpunished. And this perfect wrath of God is complete. Uh, there's no stone unturned in the, in, in, if you can have stones in the heavens and the earth. The whole creation is turned over in the whirlwind, the seas, the mountains. The rocks are shattered before him. His wrath is poured out like fire. No inhabitant will avoid this. This is an all-encompassing, complete Judgment. Who can withstand his indignation, verse 6, or who can endure his fierce anger? No mistakes are made in the wrath of God. Now we can see this. We can see the perfection of God's judgment here by imagining some alternatives. Well, we don't actually have to imagine because this is so often what we experience. But imagine that power without the justice. That's a terrible thing, isn't it? To have that kind of power without justice. An unstoppable wrong. Or, the other way around, imagine having that justice without the power. That is no use to anybody. Imagine that, that this, the, the completeness of God expressing his wrath with all, the, with all the turmoil in creation. Imagine the completeness of God doing that without it being measured, with it being indiscriminate. Well, you can go on justice without patience, vengeance without justice. Um, the, the paranoia of a leader who doesn't know who his enemies are, exercising wrath. This is the perfect wrath of the perfect God. But it raises the question, doesn't it, at verse 6, who can survive? Well, there is one safe place. Verse 7, the Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. The Lord himself is the safe place from the Lord's perfect wrath. He is good. The Lord is good in his expression of justice and judgment and wrath. And he is also good in his saving from wrath. 
The Lord is good. A refuge in times of trouble, he cares for those who trust in him. Paul said, didn't he, to the Athenians, for God has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He's given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. The God that Nahum introduces us to has given us proof that his full and perfect and final judgment will fall. He is set a day. So obviously, we should do what Paul tells us to do in those verses. In the past, God overlooked ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent, for he has set a day when he will judge the world. So with the prospect of that day, Verse 7 is the only safe place. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, who have repented and turned back to him. Now, as a child, I always wondered why the church calendar started with Advent. Why doesn't it start with Christmas? That seems like a good beginning, you know, a nice new baby and all that sort of thing. Nice start, peace and good tidings. It's a nice opening chapter. But of course it starts with Advent um, because we have this overwhelming theme. The overwhelming theme of Advent is, is God's judgment against evil. We now associate that with the coming of Jesus because God has set a day when that judgment will come and it will come with Jesus when he returns. Uh, one of the reasons for doing Nahum, therefore, um, because it means we do Advent properly, because we're going to get three chapters of judgment, pretty much, with a little bit of light along the way. But it's that inevitable, perfect and complete judgment of God, that's what makes sense of the baby being born. Because the peace that he proclaims is in the light of the inevitable, perfect, complete and coming judgment of God. It's a peace beyond just organising things better on earth. But it's this refuge and this care from the Lord himself. Jesus is the fulfilment of verse 7. The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him. Now the Thessalonians knew this clearly. Listen to what Paul says about them. Uh, this is the testimony that's given about the Thessalonians that Paul is recounting. It says that people say, how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's the turn to God. And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus is the one who has been appointed 
on that set day to bring the perfect wrath of God. And Jesus is also the one who rescues us from the coming wrath. Jesus is precisely the answer that Advent needs. The warnings of God's coming judgment. He is peace and good tidings with and from God. So if complete judgment is assured, there's two things then for us. When you hear about final judgment coming, don't wince or don't, don't, don't lose, don't, don't be knocked off your stride as a Christian when you hear of the wrath of the Lamb and the coming of God's justice because it is perfect. The perfect wrath of the perfect God. Everything will be put perfectly right in the right way at the right time with great power. God will not have lost control. He has always been slow to anger. But when you hear of that and you perhaps think of it, you read about it in the scriptures, don't lose your stride. But at the same time, return, come and stay in the only safe place. Turn back to the Lord Jesus Christ. Remember him. the Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now maybe we pass over these lines in the hymns that we sing. But it's right to rejoice. There's something about celebrating and clapping when the Lord will finally come in judgment. But if you've read these with it, if you've been reading through these verses with us this morning, there is only one safe place in the light of this judgment. So through the Christmas season, and it's in some of the carols, although those verses often get missed out, it's definitely in the Advent carols as we hear this reminder. Final judgment is coming against all that is evil and all the enemies of God. Don't stumble but trust in the Lord Jesus and know his care. Very general statement about God in those verses, but then it does get specific just in verse 8, doesn't it? The Lord is good, a refuge in times of trouble. He cares for those who trust in him, but with an overwhelming flood, he will make an end of Nineveh. Nahum brings it right down to earth for him and his hearers in their day with all the trouble from Assyria. He will make an end of Nineveh. He will pursue his foes into the realm of darkness. Uh, and the rest of this chapter is particularly focused in Nahum's context. He's gone from the general statement about God to the working out in his historical moments. Now, every specific um, a moment like this in the Old Testament is a foreshadowing of the fulfilment in the Lord Jesus. So all the specific expressions of God's wrath in the Old Testament, as we'll see against Assyria here, 
couple of specific uh, mentions are revealing to us, are foreshadowing the final judgment that God brings. God is being revealed to us. So what is it actually like when God does something? What goes with that? So what, um, it's important to remember that Nahum there is not a parable of final judgment. It's a genuine historical moment, but God reveals himself in that genuine historical moment. He's showing us how his judgment will work out. And what we discover is that when God's perfect wrath is expressed, God's perfect deliverance is always right there with it. We see his perfect wrath worked out, and so we see his perfect deliverance. Um, Nahum talks about his wrath first. So looking at verses down through um, verses 7 through to 15, we see the one safe place. It's interesting, isn't it, that um, we often feel unsafe in the face of evil as we experience it in our own day. Nahum says there is a safe place. But he says that it would be like the days of Noah. That's the, in, the image of the overwhelming flood. Nineveh will be eating and drinking and just getting on with life. The enemy often seems so secure and an overwhelming flood will come and they will be overtaken. Our enemies are engaging in pointless plotting all the time. Uh, against the Lord, verse 9, whatever they plot, he'll bring to an end. Trouble won't come a second time. It will be final uh, and complete. We often fear what evil people are plotting, don't we? That if, if, if somebody is against us, or even a, a particular nation or whatever, what, what are they plotting? What are they plotting? Jill and I have been playing games all week on holiday, and I'm always very suspicious what she's plotting uh, in the game. But that's what it's like, isn't it? Well, Nahum says, well, all their plots, it will bring them to an end. They'll be entangled thorns, drunk from wine, they'll be consumed like dry stubble. They'll never get anywhere. No direction, no sense, no life in the end. They're just a confused mess of plans in the Lord's eyes. Verses 9 and 10 are generally uh, speaking about the Assyrians as a people, but they have a leader from you, Nineveh, has one come forth who plots evil against the Lord and devises wicked plans. The people are against the Lord, verse 9. The particular leader is against the Lord, verse 11. Verse 12, they have great allies. They're not on their own, although they have allies and are numerous. Oh, but they will be destroyed. And we get destroyed three times. Verse 11, they will be destroyed. Verse 14, I will destroy the images that are in their midst. And the end of verse 15, they will be completely destroyed. In this specific outworking, which foreshadows when God's wrath 
will be fully expressed. This specific outworking of God's wrath, it also means deliverance for God's people. We see it positively, don't we, in verse 7? We've seen that. The last bit of verse 12. Here's a God who controls all of history. Although I have afflicted you, Judah, that tiny little kingdom, under the constant presence of the evil power of Assyria, although I I have afflicted you, Judah, I will afflict you no more. The judgment of God means the deliverance of his people. And you can see that in the way, I don't know if you noticed as it was read, Nahum seems to be talking to different people all the time. So, um, he's telling the people different things at different points. So he speaks to God's people, down through verses 7, 8, 9, 10, but then directly to Nineveh in verse 11. And then he comes back and talks to God's people. Although they have allies, that's Assyria, and are more numerous, they will be destroyed. He's talking to Judah there. And then he comes back and talks to the Nineveh directly. down in verse 14 the Lord has given a command concerning you Nineveh what's the effect of that well the effect of that is that um, he's talking to Judah and he's talking to Nineveh but everybody hears what everybody else is being told everybody knows what's happening the God of history is making it clear to everybody what is happening here, that his wrath is coming and his deliverance is coming. Here is comfort and assurance for anyone who has turned, who has trusted in the Lord for refuge in the face of evil. Not only assurance for the very end, but assurance along the way. through the foreshadowings of the final judgment, the evil that we know is present today. This means two things for us. We should be confident not to lose our stride when there's always something wrong, however big or small. Because of who God is, he won't miss it and he won't ignore it. His wrath is perfect All history is in his hands and under his scrutiny. We can leave it to him to bring justice effectively in his time. We should make every effort to bring justice, but we will not do it completely and perfectly and fully. We'll be hindered, thwarted. He will bring justice effectively in his time. There's a certain freedom in that. When you look at the trouble around the world, in Israel and Palestine, in Ukraine and Russia, the disasters, tragedies and injustices, knowing that sure, complete and perfect wrath will come, 
which will, have, which will make no mistakes in sorting these things out. Even more so when God's own people are caught up and overwhelmed by such evil. Opposition, persecution, where evil abounds in all sorts of ways. We have no need to be knocked off our stride. This is a comfort to us. When we think of the final day of judgment, the same comfort is ours. But only, secondly, if we have returned and come and stayed in the only safe place. Repenting and turning back to God. He has given us Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. So our comfort is to wait for him. Comfort, that strength to pass through the trouble. To live towards that day. Acts 17 told us that God has set a day of perfect judgment and it will be by Jesus. 1 Thessalonians taught us that Jesus is the one who rescues us from that same wrath. As both those passages make clear, it's not Christmas in itself, Jesus' birth itself that achieves that. It's that he died and was on the third day raised again. Both acts The proof is Jesus' resurrection. Jesus is the one who died and rose, who will save us from the coming wrath. The proof that he will judge the world and the proof that he can rescue us is the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. You see the same wrath and deliverance being brought together. The wrath of God falling on Christ as he died deliverance for him from the dead. That was Jesus' first coming. Wrath and deliverance worked for us. Uh, His second coming, he will bring the wrath and still be our deliverance. Christmas needs to come after Advent, that's for sure. Advent is what sets up Christmas to make sense. But Easter has to come after Christmas. And the return of Jesus has to come after Easter. So who knows what evil will rear its head this week? Might be opposition or persecution or trouble. Who knows what will come to us as a nation, as individuals? Well, don't lose your stride. Don't be overwhelmed. Don't, don't feel like it's hopeless. Come back to the safe place. Whenever you see evil, think Jesus. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we recognise how pervasive evil is in your world. 
And so it has always been. And so it will be until the Lord Jesus returns and puts everything right. Father, give us confidence this has not escaped your sight. That though you are slow to anger, the day will come when everything will be put right. And so we thank you, Heavenly Father, that there is a safe haven for us in the midst of all this evil. A safe place where we know your care. A refuge for those who trust in you. And so, Father, we pray that you would help us whenever we're faced with evil that confuses us and distresses us, Father, that we might turn to the Lord Jesus and remember both his first and his second coming, that we might find peace, that we might indeed, indeed hear this good news, the one who proclaims peace, and celebrate our festivals. In Jesus' name, amen.